listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Today I'd like to talk about... Actually, it's really not proper. It's not that I want to talk about it. I'd like to take a nice, long look at your underwear. Can I do that since we're family? We're family, aren't we? I'd like to take a nice, long look at your underwear. Well, at least I would like you to take a nice, long look at your underwear. How about that? Can we meet somewhere in between? I'd like you to take a nice long look at your underwear, see, because if you're like me, you might think that your underwear serves one purpose when God has an entirely different purpose in mind for your underwear. Turn with me in our Father's Word, Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Luke chapter 9, verse 57, as we look at some distinguishing traits of a true disciple of God. What are the distinguishing marks, the distinguishing traits, the characteristics, the telltale signs that a man, woman, boy, or girl is really a follower of God? Here they are, three of them. They have to deal with your home, your mission, and your vision. Your home, your mission, and your vision. Beginning in verse 57, as they were going along the road, this is, if we remember our time from last time together, Jesus has been rejected in a Samaritan town. He's made up his mind that now his ministry is going to go from Galilee, where it had primarily focused, to Jerusalem. That Jesus' entire ministry is now going to culminate in Jerusalem, where he'd be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the official rulers of the nation of Israel would reject him, although there were individuals in the nation of Israel who would accept Jesus and follow Jesus, for example, the apostles. The nation of Israel as a whole would reject Jesus. That would happen in Jerusalem. And it's as Jesus is en route to that location, to Jerusalem, that this takes place. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he, the person who heard Jesus say that, said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Wow. Jesus, with absolute purpose, clarity, focus, passion, conviction, making his way to the certainty of his own death, heading for Jerusalem. And as he's on his way, people are following him to a certain degree, one degree or another. See, people are always following Jesus in one degree or another. 
That word following needs to be qualified, needs to be quantified, needs to be unpacked a little bit, needs to be defined. Because not all who follow Jesus are really following Jesus the way Jesus should be followed. Not all followers are really followers. And here in verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone, look at the anonymity, someone said to him, could be anyone, could be you. I will follow you wherever you go. Do you know anybody who's told God, I will go wherever you want to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. But in the back of their mind, in the recesses of their heart, there's a boundary around a certain issue, a certain area, a certain limitation. God, you can have all of me except don't send my child to the foreign mission field. Lord, you can have all of me, just give me a nice place to live in. Lord, you can have all of me, provided you fill in the blank. This is someone who Jesus responds to with clarity, and he says to them, he gives them a lesson on nature and what's common for living creatures. Foxes have holes, the place where they live, their home. In the back of our house, as we were going down what we now affectionately call the hill of death. <laughs> now that we have over 25 inches of snow in the back of our house, that sloping landscape that's beautiful in the fall and in the spring and in the summertime behind our house, the place where we live, is now affectionately referred to as the hill of death. Because if you take a toboggan up to the top of that hill, or a sled of any kind, and you try to reenact Christmas vacation, the Chevy Chase scene. <laughs> the odds are very high that you could end up with an injury by the time five or ten seconds pass and you end up at the bottom of that hill. In our backyard, I noticed while I was out there with our boys that Janet and I were out there experimenting on the hill of death, <laughs> having lived to survive it. I looked up and I said to my son, Simi, and I said, look at that. There is a nest up at the top of that tree that you couldn't regularly see in the summer or in the spring or even in the fall before the leaves fall off. But now all the leaves are gone and there was that nest exposed for all eyes to see the home of some type of a bird, a fairly large bird, for a good chunk of its time, at least before the migration season at least before it was time to go and pursue what you wish you did, but you didn't do in time, warmer weather. A nest, the home where that bird was living for a good chunk of the year, a place where it would have its security, it would raise its young ones, its offspring, the place that it would return to after a long journey, after being out throughout the course of the day, a home. And Jesus again uses that term, that title for himself, son of man. Again, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, refers to himself as the son of man, uses that terminology and says, as for me, if you want to follow me, there's a cost involved. If you want to follow me, 
There's a cost involved. You have to realize that I'm on the road. I'm about my father's business, and you must make a decision about what will be more important to you, comfort and convenience and security and safety or following me as I do my father's work. See, a true disciple understands that it's about following Jesus, not about security, not about nesting. Ladies, here we go. Nesting is important for a woman, a place where pictures can be hung, bedspreads can be spread, carpets can be laid, Furniture can be arranged. Meals can be served. And men, don't give your woman a hard time about how she likes to make the nest look nice because you like to eat meals, don't you? A happy wife is a happy life. (laughs) And before you get too adamantly, passionately on the case of your spouse for the beauty of the nest that you enjoy... Remember that you have a workshop, Uh uh-oh. You have a garage that your wife would love to get into and clean out. You have areas in your house that are off limits that you don't want your wife to go anywhere near or there will be World War III. Whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, We all have something intrinsically inside of us that gravitates towards space. We want our man cave. We want our nest. We want our place of safety and security and peace and solace. We want our home. But if you're going to follow Jesus... You've got to be passionate about following Jesus wherever he goes and not be primarily, first and foremost, concerned about your home, your nest, your man cave, your place of security and safety. Listen, God didn't give you a place of security and safety and comfort so that you could sit there and watch other people follow Jesus. It's good to have a place that even Jesus In most cases, for most of us, we have a living standard that even Jesus did not have. Now, for those listening by podcast who are into what we would call the prosperity gospel, you might be struggling with what I just said. You might be struggling with this particular passage of Scripture where Jesus, out of his own mouth, says, the Son of Man, I, Jesus, The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't have a home with a deed bearing his name. See, members of the nighttime Bible reading society, those who read the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, one eye closed, read portions of Scripture and miss other portions, come to wrong conclusions because some people have come to the conclusion that Jesus was wealthy. Jesus was filthy rich. And therefore, because Jesus had money, I 
can have money. I should have money. Some of you who watch the big hair Christian television programs, what do I mean by big hair? The kind of hair that results from too many cans of hairspray. The Christian gaudiness that somehow, I don't know where that's in Scripture. I don't know why when you are able to be on television that that equates to gaudiness. But for some reason it translates that way. Maybe it's that way in the original Greek. I don't know. Some people have speculated based on John chapter 19. Look with me. John chapter 19, verse 23. Some people have speculated that Jesus was filthy rich based on this particular passage of Scripture. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. So we know that there are four soldiers at least there. Also his tunic, which is his underwear. The tunic was the garment that would go between the outer garment and the body. The tunic, common equivalent, underwear. I told you that we were going to talk about your underwear. We're going to talk about Jesus' underwear first. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now stop right there. Woven in one piece from top to bottom. In other words, it was not the commoner's underwear. You had to have a few Benjamins, maybe, we would say. You'd have to have a few dollars in this first century era to buy that type of underwear, that type of undergarment, that type of tunic. It was not common practice. So, members of the Nighttime Bible Reading Society would look at that particular passage of Scripture. They would say, see, Jesus had money. Jesus had money, and therefore, I should have money. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, it was definitely a rare piece of clothing. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done what verse 24 says. Yes, it was obviously a valuable piece of clothing. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done what verse 24 says in John 19. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And members of the Nighttime Bible Reading Society completely missed this next section of Scripture. This was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. And where does that come from? It comes from Psalm 22, beginning in verse 16. Look with me at Psalm 22 in verse 16. One of the most striking passages of Scripture, written quite a long time before Jesus came on the scene and graphically detailing a crucifixion. And not just a crucifixion, but the specific crucifixion that Jesus endured. There were specifics about Jesus' crucifixion that were unlike a generalized crucifixion. And here they are. In Psalm 22, beginning in verse 16, for dogs encompass me. Dogs is a derogatory way of referring to non-Jewish people, Gentiles. And the Romans would be considered that. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. The idea of somebody being on a cross and bearing their weight, the tremendous strain that would be on the shoulder joints and the rotator cuffs and the knees and all the joints would be overwhelming. The up and down motion to stay up on the cross and breathe by pushing your legs up and then relaxing so that you could rest your legs while your lungs are being suspended. You're not breathing anymore. This up and down motion that would take place for hours in the case of Jesus, days in the case of other people. This is clearly describing somebody who was crucified. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. The idea of a crowd watching this, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. To look at John 19, verses 23 and 24, and to conclude that Jesus was a wealthy person is to entirely miss the point. Royally miss the point. This is why when we read Scripture, Scripture must interpret Scripture. Otherwise, you too could be a member of the Nighttime Bible Reading Society. Misinterpret. And start going down a path that God never intends for you to go down, which is it's about me, myself, and I. If Jesus was rich and I'm a child of the king, this is the reasoning, then I should be rich. I'm the head and not the tails. I've been to churches like that. I've heard the preaching, not secondhand, firsthand. I've been there. I've done that. And maybe you have too. Maybe you're listening to my podcast. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, the intention of John 19, 23, and 24 is not to help you understand your worldly riches that you should have. That Jesus had a seamless garment was obviously a rarity, obviously because Jesus was packing some money and therefore you should have the same. Why do we not have the same concern and passion that Jesus had when he said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but if you want to follow me, then you too will not have a home that you delight in that you treasure. It's not an evil thing to enjoy your home, to enjoy your nest, to enjoy your hole. But eternally speaking, you should see it as merely a hole and merely a nest. The idea that's being presented here is that if you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, your home will be the will of God. Your home is Jesus. Your security is Jesus. Your wealth is in Jesus. Your happiness is in Jesus. Your provision is in Jesus. Many people have misconstrued what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, and thought that it means riches and wealth. For all you know, Jesus could have saved that pair of underwear for a couple of days before he was crucified specifically so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Do you not understand that even Jesus' underwear was designed to point people to the purpose of God? Even Jesus' underwear was deliberately put on his body so that 
the scriptures would be fulfilled, that people would be able to see that Psalm 22 is a reference to Jesus. Everything about Jesus was designed to fulfill the plan, the will, the purpose of his Father. Even Jesus' underwear had a purpose beyond its natural created intention to wick away moisture from the body, to provide a barrier between the outward clothing and the body. Naturally speaking, to be a line of defense, a line of comfort so that the outer clothes would be more comfortable and not rubbing against the body, the skin itself. But there was a greater purpose for Jesus' tunic. There was a greater purpose for Jesus' underwear than just the natural means. It was to fulfill Scripture. It was to point people to the divine purpose for which he came. And if that was the purpose of Jesus' underwear, if that was the purpose of something that we would consider meaningless and insignificant. Some of you have holy underwear. If even underwear had a purpose in the life of Jesus to point people to the will of God, and you and I are disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, that speaks to us. It helps us understand that there is nothing in your life that has a menial, insignificant, worldly purpose in and of itself. Everything, even your underwear, should be by design for the purpose of God. Take a look at your underwear. Not now, please. Take a look at your underwear and ask yourself if it has the purpose of God woven through it. Even something is what we would consider to be insignificant. Jesus' undergarment had a divine purpose and if you and I, if we are going to be followers of that same Jesus, then we must take a lesson from the Jesus we say we're following. And that lesson is there is no such thing as an insignificant realm in your life. All of it, if you're a real follower of Jesus, if you're going to be cut from the same cloth as Jesus, if you're going to follow Jesus and Jesus sets the pace, Jesus casts the mold, Jesus breaks the mold, Jesus sets the standard. If you're going to follow Jesus, every part of your life has significance for the divine plan of God. You know, for all we know, somebody could have given Jesus that underwear Let's not speculate about Jesus being wealthy and read portions of the scripture while neglecting others. And I might even say this, if Jesus was indeed wealthy, he sure knew how to use his wealth in a strategic way that would put many of us who adhered to the prosperity gospel to shame. If God has given you money, and for some of us, God's given us a lot. The purpose of that money is to be used strategically. Listen, 
so that whatever you're spending your money on would point people to God's divine plan, would point people to the glory of God. Now for the rest of us, if God hasn't given us much money, the marching orders are exactly the same. It doesn't matter whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, the purpose of money, the purpose of material blessing is to fulfill God's divine plan. You must see yourself as a strategist with the resources that Almighty God has placed into your hand. Even if it's your underwear. One of the hallmarks of a true disciple, somebody who is following Jesus the way Jesus is worthy to be followed, one of the characteristics of a person who is really following Jesus in a way that's commendable, in a way that would do Jesus proud, is somebody who understands that their home is Jesus. Their home is the mission of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, following Jesus. A real disciple understands that this earth, what your home has to offer, what your nest offers, your hole offers, the place where you hang your hat is temporary. For some of us, we take great delight in that fact. For others of us, we need to be reminded of that fact. It does not matter. The truth is that a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus Christ is not consumed and concerned with the things of this world, but consumed and concerned with following Jesus regardless of where that may take them, regardless of the sacrifices that that might bring. If you're really following Jesus, Jesus is your home. Your satisfaction, your contentedness, your peace, your security are not in your 401k, your 403b, your precious metals that you're now exploring and wishing you had been in precious metals five, six, seven years ago. Your security is not in trying to find an investment that's going to be your shell, your armor, make you impervious to the financial disasters that are probably looming on the horizon in the United States of America and globally. Jesus, Almighty God is your home if you're really a follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 59 of Luke chapter 9 to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. It seems, this seems to be a noble endeavor. In fact, to honor your mother and father is the first commandment with the promise that it might go well with you. This person is not asking for a godless pursuit. This person is not asking to do something that is shameful. In fact, this is exemplary because the idea is that there's a responsibility 
to care for your mother and your father, even in death. If this person is not buried, who will take care of that body? Jewish practice, the person would be buried and then the mourning would take place for 12 months and then after that, they would go back into the tomb, gather up the bones after the tissue of the skin had decayed, gather them up and put them in an ossuary, a bone box. There would be a second burial, so to speak. Somebody had to oversee that. Somebody had to take care of that. See, we can even honor people in their death and their passing. And here another nameless person, faceless person, could be you, could be me. Gives Jesus an excuse and says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus, without even hesitating, without blinking an eye, said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. A true follower of Jesus Christ has at the forefront of their whole life the mission, the purpose of advancing God's kingdom above all else. See, there will always be plenty of people pursuing dead things. There will always be lots of people pursuing insignificant, temporal, temporary, foolish, non-eternal things. Things that might seem very important in the moment, but in light of eternity, pale in comparison. There will always be boatloads of people, in fact, the majority of people on this planet who are pursuing things that will not matter a hill of beans in light of eternity. Let them do it. Notice what Jesus says here to the second person, as for you. Never mind everybody else, let the dead bury their dead. Let those who are not interested in spiritual things continue to pursue non-spiritual things, insignificant things. But as for you, and I do mean you, as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. If you're really going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then the mission of Jesus is your all-consuming passion. In fact, until the mission of Jesus is your all-consuming passion, you are consumed with some other passion. It's not eternally significant. It's not spiritually vibrant. It's not important to Jesus. And it discloses a lack of lordship. Lack of lordship is the real reason why we won't follow Jesus. Years ago, there was a raging debate. The ripple effects are still going on today. Can you follow Jesus as Savior and not as Lord? Some said yes. Some said no. I think the whole question is ridiculous when you come to a passage of Scripture like this. Anybody could raise their head and say, I give my life to Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. But it takes somebody who's serious about the Lordship of Jesus 
to purposefully, with great intentionality, make every area of their life revolve around the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. As for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Never, bond, never mind everybody else. Never mind all the other people on the planet. Never mind all of the other people in the house of God, in the church, what we call the church, generically speaking. Never mind people who come and worship together on a Sunday morning or maybe in the midweek or whatever the case might be, outwardly what seems to be Christian service. Never mind all of that stuff. As for you, center your life upon Jesus Christ in such a way that everything points you toward the fulfillment of Jesus' mission, which is to proclaim the kingdom of God. A true follower, a real follower, a follower of Jesus has at the epicenter of their life and permeating into every area of life the advancement of the kingdom of God. There is coming a day. The day is coming. Mark my words, someday you will hear them again. The day is coming when you will no longer be able to build God's kingdom. The last person will give their life to Christ in surrender. The last deed will be done in the name of Jesus and that'll be it. The kingdom of God will be completed for that time anyway, for that season, in the way that God designed it. And that's it. A real follower of Jesus Christ has the kingdom of God as the number one, really the only pursuit of their life. Now let me provide some motivation for you from 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, look with me in verse 17. Here's the reality that you and I tend to forget from time to time, but we need to be reminded the world is passing away along with its desires. The snow, 25, 26 inches that we recently got, in a few weeks, we hope, it will pass away. It will melt. It will dissolve with something as simple as a change in the temperature. Likewise, your hole, your nest, your gold, your silver, your investments, all of that stuff, all of that stuff. For some of us, what we have spent the majority of our lives accumulating all that stuff is going to pass away. How do I know that? Because 1 John 2.17, among other passages, makes it very clear. The world is passing away along with its desires. Do you have the desires of the world as the passion of your life, the fire in your engine, or do you have the desire for the advancement of the kingdom of God motivating you, inspiring you, energizing you. The world is passing away along with its desires, worthy of committing to memory. This world that we now live in, this platform that I'm now walking on, 
the seat you're now sitting in, it is passing away. Don't deceive yourself. The desires that you might be spending most of your time focusing on, fixating on, worrying about, they're passing away. Like the snow, they will one day vanish. Nowhere to be seen. But, 1 John 2.17, whoever does the will of God abides forever. A true disciple of Jesus Christ does the will of God, advances the kingdom of God. That's an eternal investment. You can't get any more secure than that, and you can't get any more excited than that. The man, the woman, the boy or girl who does the will of God doesn't live for a couple of decades. Not like Ted Williams. Sometime in the future, the baseball star who was decapitated after he died and his head frozen. So that sometime in the nebulous future, Ted Williams' head could be reunited with either his body or somebody else's and Ted Williams could be resurrected from the dead and live forever And what kind of a life that would be, I don't know. When you are about the mission, the vision of God, when you focus your life on the kingdom of God and advancing it, everything that you set your hands to is eternally significant. And it's not until your whole life revolves around the kingdom of God and advancing and proclaiming the kingdom of God, it's not until you really buy into that and make adjustments in your life that it can really be said of us that we're disciples, followers of Jesus. Jesus is defining what following looks like. To follow him is to have the kingdom of God as the primary preoccupation, the primary proclamation of your whole life. That's what it means. A disciple has Jesus as their home. A disciple has the mission of Jesus as the marching orders for their life, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And finally, verse 61 of Luke chapter 9, another said, it could be you, could be me, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Again, not a distasteful idea. Person wants to be courteous, wants to say, I want you to know that when you come home tonight, I won't be there. Seems like a noble endeavor, a courteous endeavor, a kind endeavor. And Jesus makes it absolutely clear that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Using the agricultural imagery here that we can identify with pretty well here in York, Pennsylvania. The idea of somebody who's got the oxen in front of them, the plow in their hands, and what they would have is maybe in the left hand they would be holding the plow to steer it. And in the right hand they would be holding the leather straps that they would be directing the oxen with. And the idea is that they're supposed to blaze a furrow. They're supposed to cut that path for the seeds to be planted. They have to pay attention to the plow, have to pay attention to the oxen because oxen are prone to wander. 
But man being created in the image of God to subdue the earth is given charge over the oxen to make those oxen conform to the plan, the purpose, the will of God. And the idea is that you're supposed to be paying attention with both eyes straight ahead, not putting your hand to the plow, looking over your shoulder to see who's following. A true follower of Jesus Christ doesn't wait for other people to follow Jesus Christ. A true disciple, a true follower of Jesus Christ is a leader, blazing the trail, looking straight ahead that other people should be following to go in the direction they're going. You know, if you're not careful, you might have a condition. Spiritual amblyopia. What? Spiritual amblyopia. I hope I don't have that. It sounds serious. (laughs) Young children can get an eye exam, and when they get the eye exam, this condition Amblyopia can be detected until there's an eye exam. Oftentimes, it's not detected until it's more advanced cases. This is where one of the eyes seems to be lazy, seems to be wandering. It's called lazy eye, but not appropriately. It's really not the right word to call amblyopia lazy eye, although that's what symptomatically it's referred to. It's an early childhood condition where a child's eyesight in one eye does not develop as it should. Usually it's just in one eye. But sometimes it can affect both of them. Amblyopia is brought on when the brain focuses on one eye more than the other, virtually ignoring the quote-unquote lazy eye. If that eye is not stimulated properly, the visual brain cells do not mature normally. The term lazy eye, as I've said, is really inaccurate because the real problem is not that the eye is lazy. It's more accurate to say that it's lazy brain because it's a developmental problem in the brain, not the eye. Some of us have spiritual amblyopia, but it's not really a brain issue. It's a heart issue. See, in the natural, physical amblyopia is caused, uh, some of the symptoms are blurred vision. It's caused because there's an imbalance in the muscles that focus the eye. The brain isn't sending the messages that it should to the muscles, so therefore the muscles aren't doing what they should be doing. But the symptoms are blurred vision. Some of us have blurred vision. We can't focus on the things that are important to God because we're too focused on the things of the world. Another symptom of amblyopia, naturally speaking, double vision. Many of us have double-mindedness in the things of God, but a disciple has a single-minded vision, able to put their hand to the plow, look straight ahead and cut a straight furrow for the mission, the vision, of Jesus Christ. Poor depth perception is another symptom of amblyopia, and many of us have that problem, spiritually speaking. We have an inability to see things in light of eternity. We lose our focus on the things that really matter, and we get swept away in the worries, the cares, the distractions of this world. And it seems that in amblyopia, physically speaking, the eyes do not appear to work together. 
there's a confliction. There's a competition between one eye and the other. And for many of us, there's a competition between the will of God and our own will. The pleasure of God, the path of God, the vision of God, the kingdom of God, finding Jesus as our home, as a disciple, and taking comfort and pleasure and satisfaction and distraction in anything and everything else. For spiritual amblyopia, the real issue is one of lordship. Until and unless you make a determination that Jesus Christ will be your Lord, Jesus Christ will be your master. That all of your life exists to follow Jesus, to advance the kingdom of God, to promote the agenda of Jesus. That everything in your life, even down to your underwear, is to point people to the divine purpose of God until you realize that you're not really following Jesus in the noteworthy way that Jesus says his disciples must be characterized. A real disciple has Jesus as their home. A real disciple has the kingdom of God as their mission. The proclamation and advancement of the kingdom of God as their mission. And a real disciple is following Jesus to such a degree, with such a passion, with such a single-mindedness of focus, that the vision of God is the vision for their life. The vision of God is inseparable from the vision of a disciple. The advancement of God's vision, single-mindedness of purpose, is the thing that causes a, a, a focus, both eyes to be able to focus on the vision of God, the glory of God, the advancement of God's kingdom. Do not mistake merely dabbling, merely kind of following Jesus for really following Jesus the way Jesus must be followed. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.